0: Hey everybody, Pastor Chris here. Thanks for listening to our Market Street Podcast. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope today's message helps you in your walk with Jesus. For more ways to connect, visit us at marketstreetchurch.org. Hey, good morning, church. Uh, I know there's a lot of people at home. Uh, Just want to say hi. Um, We have an opportunity to interact, just like you're here, so I want to make sure that you're typing in comments, uh, saying hi, and asking questions, and at the end, we're going to have an opportunity to continue our experience um, and have a chance to address some uh, questions and maybe pray with you and love on you a little bit afterwards. So if you're online, please reach out to us so that we can minister to your needs. Um, I like history. Um, I'm a history geek. Uh, I studied uh, at a Jesuit university and For a time, I was actually even tempted to become a Catholic priest. I just discovered that I like girls too much. So that really wasn't a good fit. I kind of, I'm kind of a spiritual mutt. Can I be honest with you? I mean, because I went from Catholic to kind of like charismatic Catholic, which is just like Catholic on steroids who raises his hands. And then I kind of shifted into the Lutheran church. And became a lay minister there and got really involved and then I kind of moved to a huge non-denominational church, kind of a mega church, and then cycled back to here in humbleville, where there's pure and loving and intimate kind of relationships with each other you know so my experiences have been very different you know about religion. And if I'm honest with you, um, I've had a chance to see the best, and I've had a chance to see the worst that religion has to offer, okay? And, and there is a thing that the Bible talks about that is true religion, and we're going to get into that a little bit today. And I want to say up front, because I know there's people watching um, from my Catholic side of my experience, including, you know, potentially an uncle who's a priest, and, friends who are ministers and other denominations. What I'm going to say today about some of the traditions and some of the barriers of coming to Christ is not meant as an attack on any denomination. It's not meant to be a criticism of different faith traditions. Okay? We good? Because I love all of my brothers and sisters. You know, there's lots of flavors of ice cream. I love ice cream. There's lots of flavors of ice cream. It's ice cream, Right? Some flavors just don't kind of agree with me. Um, But more importantly, there are some situations where we lose our purpose as a church, as a religion, because we're focusing too much on methods and traditions and rituals and sacraments and rites, and we're forgetting about the whole christ the simplicity, the radical love that Jesus of Nazareth taught to us. And instead, we're becoming about trying to be perfect in our methods, completely forgetting about our purpose, our mission. Okay? That's what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to set this up Matthew 21, the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Y'all, everybody who's been in church for a while has seen. This picture, right? Jesus coming into town on a donkey, and, you know, people are laying down palms, and they're putting down their cloaks, and they're throwing flowers, and they're just a love fest, right? So, one of my favorite snarky authors is Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a big figure in the 80s, not as well-known today. He was actually one of the original Watergate figures. For those of us who are older, And he found Jesus in prison and ended up becoming a great minister in prison ministry. So Chuck was having great popularity in the 80s and early 90s. And he was invited on a very controversial super faith televangelist program whose show I will not mention. But it involved big hair and outrageousness. Okay, And when he went in, they were in a jacuzzi in the pre-show discussion. And Chuck was uncomfortable. He was uncomfortable. So he just didn't want to join the jacuzzi. And afterwards, he did the show, and he felt bad about it. And then later on, some scandal erupted around this ministry, and it turned out that they were doing some really naughty, bad things, and then, like, really abusing money. And some people came to Chuck and said, well, Chuck? Man, don't you really regret going on that show now? I mean, don't you think we've really been embarrassed? Like, look at all the harm that they did to Christianity. And Chuck thinks about it, and he says, you know, God's word has a way. I look at it this way. Remember that scene that Jesus has come into Jerusalem on the donkey, and everybody's screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, laying down things, whatnot? Yeah. During that whole time, the donkey is saying, all of this for me? And he says, the way I look at it, these two were just the jackass that Jesus came into town on. And so somehow, something good came from that, right? Something good came from it, because the word of God is powerful. So here's this scene, right? Here's the scene, Jesus' triumphant entry into town. Now, I'm going to paint a picture for you. It's easy for us just to hear the story over and over and over again, and then we forget what the power of it is. So join me, little mind trip together, okay? Think of us here in the United States, okay? Let's say a foreign power comes, crushes us. You with me? Most of us who survive ends up being enslaved. So we're slaves. Okay, those of us who remain are humiliated. Some of them begin to sell out because to survive, to prosper, we start selling out. So we compromise on, you know, our trueness, right? Others hold on tight. They're getting mad. Some form a resistance, right? These zealots, they form an underground. They start assassinating. They start fighting back. The Romans, the corrupt Jews, going after the tax collectors, Right? You've got this organized, like, crime organization, which takes money from us, and they're from our own people, and they're taxing the blood out of us, and they're ripping us off, and we're mad, right? Can you feel it? You're mad. Not only are you defeated, all your traditions, all the great things that you did once are gone, but now you've got foreign troops marching in your city with their flag, and you've got people selling out amongst you. Right? Even our religion begins to change. It begins to adopt. People change the way they dress. They start becoming uh, inappropriate. We start inviting foreign influences corrupting us after years of being great us, right? Now we're not so great. We're just defeated. This is the way the people feel at this time. The reason why they're excited about Jesus is because they think he's someone else. Let me explain. Six centuries before this, there was a prophet named Zechariah. And Zechariah predicts that Israel is going to be crushed, but one day, not by might, not by power, But by the Spirit, God will restore. And he will send a shepherd, a humble shepherd, who will see that the flocks are being tended by people who are abusing their authority, they're being irresponsible, they're eating the flock. In other words, they're taking advantage of the flock. He's going to get angry. And this shepherd is going to say, I'll take the flocks. You, go away. Got two staffs. I'm going to take these three flocks on. I'm going to take care of them. But the flocks hate him. Despite the fact that he's there to protect them from the predators, despite the fact that he's there to guide them to eat and to rest and to be at peace, they hate him. And so the shepherd grows tired of it, and he says, I tell you what, owners, for 30 pieces of silver, you can have them, because they don't love me. They're going to betray me, my own flock betray me. And so the shepherd is offered the 30 pieces. He says, no, I don't even want it. Give it to the potter. Give it to the potter." So this is an analogy of Jesus 600 years from now, right? Coming in the form of this humble person, but that's not what they want. They want a warrior. To a flock that doesn't even realize they're being taken advantage of and misled. And they reject him for 30 pieces of silver, just like the cost that Judas was paid to betray Jesus, by the way. And then that money is used to buy the potter's field, which the potter was part of the temple enterprise, and they use it to bury foreigners later in the first century, ironically. This is the setup, right? Do you see it? Hundreds of years before Jesus comes to the scene, we're building to this historic moment. So who did they think Jesus was? Well, what they wanted was a warrior. They wanted a warrior on a warhorse in armor with a sword, who is gonna unload a can of whoop, you know what, on Rome, <laughs> right? They wanted someone who is gonna set things right. We have been humiliated. We were once great and now we're broken and crushed. We've been compromised. We've been occupied. We are tired of this. Hosanna. Praise be to God. Hosanna in the highest. Our deliverer is here. The Messiah. Except that's not a war horse. And he's not in armor. And he's not bearing a sword. And in fact, his message is love and peace. And he says, this is not our world. We have a better world. I'm not here to become powerful and rich. I'm here to be a servant. But do you know what happens to sheep when they lose their own way and they just decide to be stubborn? They reject their shepherd. They'll go and roam around and get themselves in trouble. Is there anything as stupid in nature as a sheep? I mean, honestly, the only purpose of sheep is to be fed upon by an alpha predator. I mean, there literally isn't much use to sheep. They have no ability to really survive. They need something else to take care of them because they literally have lost the ability, right? Um, So while Zechariah hundreds of years ago is talking about the spiritual well-being, his buddy, Haggai, is talking about rebuilding the actual temple. Rebuilding Jerusalem, right? Which is where Jesus is going to in this scene. The promise restored Jerusalem. The promise that someday they're going to make Israel great again. Right? Except this is not going to be their guy. He didn't come to make Israel great again. He came to pay a price for our sins. He came as as a lamb, as the last sacrifice, as the final priest. Right? And that's just not going to settle well with people. So they're singing. They're saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, this is Zechariah, hundreds of years before he comes. Behold, your king is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, a foal of a donkey, 600 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And the people are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Let's stop there for a second. The Son of David indicates the lineage of the Messiah. Okay, so they all think he's the Messiah. Let's be clear about that. Not just a great teacher. They all think he is the Messiah. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In this case, literally, you can trace it back to, blessed is the Messiah of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There's no question what these people thought, okay? The question is, who Jesus came to be? came to be a rescuer, not a conqueror. And this disconnection is going to be huge because one day these same people who are saying, yay, Jesus, you know what they're going to do? They're going to shout, crucify him. Crucify him. The same people who are shouting in celebration, the sheep, are going to reject the shepherd, just like Zechariah predicted hundreds of years before Christ walked the earth. Why do people do this? Well, may I use a coin a, a coin, a term that we use today? We talk about big business, big government. Could I call this big religion for a second? you know, work with me on this analogy? Big religion, big religion is about process. It's about tradition. It's about status. It's about money. It's not about the mission anymore. The mission is a small part of their thinking. I want you to imagine what it's like to be in this age. It's hard to live in occupied Israel. People are struggling. With their identities, their professions, everything. Everything is crushed. But the temple retains a certain amount of authority. If you're selected as a young man, and the way you do this is you have scripture memorizing contests, right, at the synagogue. And if you're a really bright young man and you can memorize huge parts of the Bible, you get selected as a first draft to potentially then go on to be a member of a full-time group of people who work in the temple. This means you get grid money, you get benefits, food, title, you get to wear really cool clothes, and people treat you with respect. You are someone. You're a player in this culture. You walk around in these great garb with boards on your chest with gems on them, big fancy hats that they would compete with each other to see who had the coolest hat. They would have the Word of God strapped on their head in something called a phylactery just so they could fulfill the scripture that says that the Word of God is always on my mind. They would literally put a little piece of scripture on a block on their heads to say that they're walking around with the scriptures always on their heads. They were all in, baby. There were rules, and they followed them all, and they made more rules. Better yet. Talk about a monopoly. You're supposed to go periodically and appeal to God for your family. So if you're the head male of your family, you would travel to Jerusalem, you would bring money, and you would purchase an animal, and then you would buy the services of a priest, and then that priest would say, Hamana, 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 (coughs) Hamana, your sins are forgiven, see you next year. So they made money off of you, right? They made money because you had to travel, and then you had to purchase an animal, which they would have all there at the temple, like little stalls, little kiosks set up. Oh, you're poor? Here's a sparrow. Oh, here's a perfect lamb, you know? We're having a sale on lambs today. Unflawed, perfect, never been used. Um, And then they would hire the priest because that was the only way to have forgiveness. I mean, you were trapped. What a business this was, right? Can you, can you, are you feeling mad a little bit? I mean, can you feel this? Can you feel about monopolies today? You know how mad we are about monopolies today? Can you imagine if your spiritual salvation depended on people where you had to pay for someone else to do something for you? Yeah, I would tick you off, right? Well, people were getting tired of this. Jesus especially got tired of it. So Jesus encounters big religion. So in Matthew 21, 23, big religion takes note. Now keep in mind, there's a guy who shows up out of nowhere. Sure, he was a prodigy when he was a young boy. He kind of freaked everybody out. He just showed up at the temple one day, ditched his mom and dad, and was spouting off the top of his head perfectly all of the scriptures. And he had never been through the little, you know, rabbi development program. You know, he'd never been part of the, the summer camps and, it had never been selected, but he's showing this brilliance. Like, who is this kid? Wait a minute, isn't this the carpenter's son? How does he know this stuff? It's amazing. Well, out of nowhere comes Jesus, and he's saying things like this Hey, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You can't say that. You haven't charged them any money yet. You can't say that. No animal died. Wait a minute, you're disrupting our order. Who is this guy? Doesn't he understand the deal? Doesn't he understand the model here that we have in big religion? So he enters the temple area, and the chief priests and the elders of the people come to him while he's teaching. And they said, But what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? It's like, Hey, Jesus, what university did you go to? Where's your theological degree from? Mm, didn't go. I just kind of worked in my dad's workshop, picked it up as I go along. But my dad really did inspire me. You know, dad really did give me his word. and like, Okay, well, um, who said you could preach here? My father. Father. So they're baffled. But I'll tell you what, he crossed the line. Because when he starts forgiving people's sins, he does two things. First, he interferes with their business model. If you know anything about ruthless businesses, <laughs> could you not do that? Two, by saying that he's forgiving sins, he's saying that he's a high priest, or worse, that he's God, because only God can forgive sins. And what do they say? Fellas, We have got to kill this guy. He's going to mess things up. Forgive me for challenging my Sicilian mafia kind of tone, but this is basically the deal, right? So Jesus is messing up their enterprise, and he's messing up all of these barriers that have been set up. What kind of barriers are we talking about? Well, 600-some-odd rules that have been layered on the original commandments that covers everything from what you can do during the course of your week in business to a woman's cycle and her behavior to how we interact with other people. I mean, this is pretty comprehensive. And then on top of that, the Pharisees add even more rules because they don't want to make it too easy for people to fall outside of God's rules. And people would become a little bit too independent if this was easy, right? They wouldn't need the priest class anymore. So it's nearly impossible to have the right relationship with God at this time, unless you had the help of the professional priest class. Now again, I make no dispersions upon modern denominations, but isn't there something to be said for having a personal relationship with God? where you don't need another person to stand between you and God, where you can go freely and go before the throne with a humble heart, with a broken heart, to your father and ask him directly for his guidance, for his intervention, without having to pay anyone to do it, without having to kill some poor animal to do it, right? So when you think about it, you've got bad religion and we've got good religion, okay? I don't even like the word bad religion, I'll be honest with you, I just don't. I don't like the word religion, period. I think it's really more about a relationship that we have with God. But for the sakes of what common culture calls it, let's agree that it's religion. So bad religion is more concerned about tradition than mission. What does that mean? That means, one, two, three, come to me, right? Here's your steps, let's make it simple. We'll have an algorithm, right? Do these steps and you are saved, okay? Say all the right things, do all the right things, boom, you're in. Of course, this comes with a subscription price, which we occasionally have to pay, but nonetheless, Bad religion is about the method, it's not about the mission. The mission is Christ crucified, risen, and forgiving our sins and the fact that he's coming back. Now, many of these same churches today that we have still believe that, but their process makes it difficult. They just put a lot of stuff in your way. Right? I love them. And listen, I belong to multiple denominations, right? You've heard my spiritual pedigree. I still love beauty of the stained glass and the art. You know, my wife and I traveled to Italy, and we went to these churches, which are really now nothing more than museums, because people don't go there, which is pretty. We've gone to churches where the pastors are paid by the state as employees, because they're more like museums. And I look at it, and to me, I feel inspired. I sometimes sang old hymns in some other denominations when I visit friends' weddings or special occasions in other churches, and I still feel joy because I remember the mission. So it's possible, you know, it's possible to have a connection with God in these denominations and whatnot, even though that there's a lot of stuff between you and God. It's possible. And so we should show respect and love to our brothers and sisters who worship differently than we do. I'm not criticizing them, I'm just saying it's harder Right? Just harder. And so, traditions get in the way of mission. Judgment. Now I'm going to talk smack because some people are going to get mad. Judgment. There are some denominations, very fundamentalist denominations, uh, from really harsh traditions that specialize in hating people who look different and behave different than we do. They're more about, we don't want that kind of people in our church. Well, we don't want sinners coming in here. Wow, why don't you just put on the fancy robes and wear the gems and the big hats, like the Pharisees used to, right? Well, we don't want that. No, we don't want to be a church that's, you know, evangelistic oriented, because then anyone could come here. It's the kind of place that, you know, the pastor and the board all have parking signs in front so that nobody parks there, and the people reserve seats. I went to this one church once, and someone sat over me and said, like, yeah, I was just visiting. Um, This is where my family sits. Okay. (laughs) We didn't go back there. We didn't go back to that church again. Um, So, judgment. I was in the National Guard for 23 years, and... We were often called to do military funerals, especially during um, the time when people were just deploying, rotating out of Afghanistan and Iraq. And this one church who will go unnamed would show up and protest at some of the funerals. God hates gays. I won't use the term that they used. They would have signs and they would shout that the reason why our men and women are coming back dead is because we're tolerating this behavior and they would disrupt the funeral and as a Christian I was enraged I was angry I was ashamed I was ashamed these are supposed to be my people how dare they how dare they abuse their title as Christians and their judgmentalism and their lack of grace and calm and shame. A sacred moment like this. It still makes me angry when I think about it. That's unacceptable. That is not what Christ stood for. That's not the radical doctrine of love and grace that Jesus preached. But yet that happens. And it hurts. And it reflects on us. Abuses of authority. We all know about sexual scandals. We all know about issues that are going on everywhere. Bad religion. None of us is above temptation. None of us is above scrutiny. Our pastor, Pastor Chris, he has a group of people who hold him accountable. He wants that. Our finances are scrutinized. We need to. We need to make sure that people know that we're being led by a good shepherd and that the resources that we're given are being used appropriately. Accountability is important. When you have an autocrat or a group of thugs on a board running a church, that's bad. That's when abuses start, right? There has to be humble leadership and accountability or bad things happen in religion. There are people who have become fabulously wealthy. We all know that. There are people whose shoes cost more than what I earn in a month that are on television right now. I'm not going to say another word. There are people who exclude outsiders and promote separatism. Did you know at one time, church was the most segregated day on Sunday, was the most segregated day of the week? That people of color would worship separately. And still to this day, there are many churches that are are segregated just by self. There's no rules about it. They segregate themselves. Why? Why? Grow God's children. Why should we be apart? And then they create this culture of elitism and entitlement. You know? Like, pastors are these figures that are untouchable, you know, that there are these authors and scholars, and it's not like we can aspire to do ministry because they've got this, right? They've got this persona, right? That is not the model of a servant leader. Right? Unfortunate, that's not what we have here at Market Street Church. And I can say that my friends who are ministers in other denominations certainly don't lead their flocks this way. All right, I'm proud of the men and women who serve in ministry um, that I've had a chance to know, and I know that the vast majority of us are just trying our best to do and be faithful what God commands us to do. But yet, there are those few, and it reflects badly on us. It does. So what does good religion look like? Good religion is being on mission, right? What's mission? It's simple, the Great Commission. Go out, baptize, make disciples, people throughout the world. That's it. Love one another as God has loved you. It's simple. It really is. Why do we make it more complicated? Why do we put so many steps in place? Why do we put so many barriers? Why do we put cultural impositions? Why are we so concerned about how people dress or whether they have a tattoo or maybe they made some difficult mistakes in life and they're coming to us with some baggage? why do we emphasize on these minor details when we forget what's really important? They're children of God. We need to love them. We need to meet them as they are. We need to be a church which is about grace but uses judgment not as a blunt instrument of our strength but as a way of restoring people, right? We all make mistakes. None of us is perfect. And I'll tell you what, if you look perfect, there's probably something really nasty going on in the background because it's the quiet, holy ones that I worry about the most... You start preaching about purity and whatnot, man, then you find out the guy has been visiting places of ill repute and watching things that he shouldn't. Man, it's almost inevitable. The enemy knows our weakness. We need to be humble. We need to understand. We need to be more about grace. But that is not to say that we openly endorse, accept, or ignore destructive lifestyles, Can we call it sin. Okay? Not saying that. But we love that sinner. We just hate the sin. We've had people come to our church before who were following, you know, different lifestyles. Uh, And we have said to them, I'm sorry we love you, but we can't marry you because we believe marriage is between a man and a woman. But we love you, and you're welcome to come here. Um, And that's the way it should be. We have principles, and we believe these are true principles, and they're biblical. It doesn't mean we need to hate those individuals or shun those individuals, but it does mean we need to call sin sin, without stopping having a relationship with people. Because while their sin may look conspicuous, our sin may be silent and just as bad. I mean, I got an issue with pride and gluttony. Those are sins. Did you know that? Those are sins. Why is my sin less than your sin? Just because it's culturally acceptable for me to be arrogant and fat? But you've got some other thing that kind of makes me uncomfortable? But no, bad you, bad you, but don't look at me, bad you. Right? No, that's, that's not what Christianity is about. We should all be better, all of us, me too. By the way, I am working out. My wife's working on it very hard. She's constantly on me. Being wise stewards of what's donated to us, I mean, being devoted to justice and dignity, these things are important too, right? Justice and dignity, but we know that there's bad things happening around us. We're not a political church. Our purpose here is not to tell you how to vote. It's to tell you how to encounter Jesus and to live a full life in Christ. I mean, however you politically identify is on you personally, personally, I have no faith in any politician. But I do have a lot of faith in Jesus Christ. So our position is, your politics are your politics. What kind of Christian are you? That's what we want to know. Okay, You may be very motivated for social justice, and that's a noble and good thing. By the way, that's consistent with our Christian faith to make sure people aren't discriminated against and abused. That's consistent with being a loving person. It's also consistent to be concerned with protecting the unborn and, and protecting those with disabilities and, and, and making sure that people of faith aren't discriminated against. That's also noble and good. But be careful. Right? We're not a church that tells you how you should vote. We're a church that tells you that Jesus Christ is the answer. Right? We wouldn't need politics if we were all serving Christ. We'd be in a better place. So Wise steward to what's donated goes without saying. Loves people of all colors and faiths and genders, yes? Absolutely. And We need to be a church that just wants to be like Jesus and less like us. And creates a culture of servant leaders. Very important. It's very important that people know that this isn't a place that you go to for status. That if you end up in ministry, that it's about your ego and you get your career Ticket punched. I mean, Pastor, are you enjoying driving your Beamer and your Armani suits? Are they fitting you well? Absolutely, he says, because he doesn't get a Beamer and he doesn't get Armani suits. Um, You know, it's not about that. It's not about that. It's about serving God, loving people. So, can I roll it down to this? It's about being born again. Ouch, that is such a 1980s term. Can I tell you just a little bit about this? I mean, being born again. There used to be a time where we say, "Are you born again?" You know, um, and it used to irritate me because somebody came to my door, and they, they said, "You know, do you know Jesus Christ is your savior?" Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm a you know lay minister at this church and this and this. yes, but are you born again? Like, dude, I just told you, <laughs> ministering at this church and and you know yeah, I, yeah, I'm born again. It's not meant to be a divisive thing, but it is a thing. Right, let's, let's examine this. because maybe a while since some of you have really explored this term. It goes back to John 3.2. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He stopped there for a second. He calls him Rabbi. This is not a man who thinks he's the Messiah. It's just a teacher, you're a teacher and these things that you're doing, these signs, what he's saying is, okay, you're doing miraculous things. I've just watched you make people walk and do these amazing things. so I know you must be from God, and I guess that must mean you're from God. this person's trying to put it together in their head, right? And he came at night, which means he was probably embarrassed or to come. To So somebody might see him. So I'm guessing maybe he's from, you know, the far right wing of the church and he's like one of the Pharisees or something. I'm just speculating. Like, nobody sees me. Let me sneak in. I have to ask this guy something. Like, dude, you're doing miracles and stuff. It must be from God, but I don't get you. So two observations, right? Obviously this person is questioning and he wants to know what is the deal with you why are you so different than what we expected? And Jesus says in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this blows the mind of the person hearing this. Okay, this is a new teaching. Keep in mind, this is new. What do you mean? All I have to do is go through the temple structure, pay the dude at the gate, and then he kills a critter, and my sins are good, right? So you're saying there's more to that? It's like, oh, forget about all that. All you got to do is be born again. And his Pharisee buddy, Nicodemus, who served in the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the Vatican, okay? The Vatican on steroids. The Sanhedrin, just so you know, is this massive bureaucracy. They have 23 lesser judges. Full paid positions, right? With benefits, healthcare probably. And greater body called um, the Greater Sanhedrin, which has 71. And they rule Judaism. They rule Judaism. They have the power of life and death. They run big business, the temple business, right? Sanhedrin is the headquarters of the corporation. So Nicodemus, one of these guys is curious about Jesus, and and, and it's a good sign. It means that Nicodemus probably is thinking, hey, this could be the Messiah. What if we got this wrong, right? So Nicodemus says, hey, Jesus, um, how can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time to be born. Can he? I mean, because this Jesus has done some amazing things. I mean, nobody knows. He's breaking all the rules. So here's a guy who just legitimately, he's like big religion, right? And he's just concerned. It's like, so you're teaching something new. Help me understand this. And so, so that you know, Nicodemus, later on, is the guy who brings the spices and embalming materials for Jesus. He's the guy during the trial said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're violating our trial process by the way you're treating this man. Right? Tradition says Nicodemus ends up becoming a Christian and he's even attributed to have done miracles according to some Catholic authors. So we know that he had a positive impression on someone who was formerly part of big religion. right? Something about Jesus is too intriguing. So how do you become born again? So, this is a hard subject. I'm going to make it really simple, and forgive me, because I'm going like, to blow through a lot of theology and whatnot that probably is a barrier for a lot of us. Can I just make it real down-to-earth for you? Can we just stop overthinking this for a second? Can we stop overthinking salvation for a second? I know we've been conditioned to have to ask a thousand questions, to do scholarly studies, to do things, to kill critters and have people do stuff for us. You don't need to do any of it. If you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that without him, you can't ever have forgiveness or salvation. If you believe that that Jesus deserves to lead you in your life, override the mistakes, the bad thinking, everything, right? Be your personal God and boss, right? and that he's coming back again one day. Real simple. You're a born again Christian. Congratulations. You can be a member of other denominations, right? But you know what the key thing is? I'm a sinner, meaning I mess up. I can't get the relationship right between me and God, because I keep putting my life ahead of God. I keep rebelling against God by the things I do. I can't do it on my own. I'm just not clever enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have the willpower to do it, and I never will, because I'm not God. He is. Once I come to that understanding, and once I believe sincerely, and I mean sincerely, that the answer is him, and I invite him to come into my heart, you're saved. It isn't any more complicated than that. Friends, you don't, you, know, you don't have to go to seminars and have secret handshakes or wear silly hats. All right, you're just saved. And from that, you should be better than you are. Now, I'm not talking about an emotional moment. Or someone does a call, or you go with a buddy, or you're with some cute girl, and she's like really on board with Christ, and you really want to be in her life, so you pretend to be a Christian, or a cute guy, and you know, you pretend to be a Christian, and you convert so that you can get married and have that fancy church wedding, and then you're done. No more religion. No, that is not being a Christian. That's trying to be a human being manipulating God, Right? To be a Christian, you have to truly love God. In here, you have to feel a need where you're broken. In here, you have to feel a need where like, okay, I got it. I've been in control for this many years, and I pretty much made a mess. I'm ready for you to take over because I believe you're real, and that you're going to do a better job with this life, and all the stuff I have to care for, my kids, my wealth, my health, everything I have, every possession, it's all yours now. Wow, that is so liberating. And it's hard. It's the hardest thing in the world to give up control. Because you know what, secretly, what we all want? We all want to be God. We don't want there to be a God who is an objective God, who has a set of true laws that we should follow, moral codes. We want to create an a la carte set of rules. Pick and choose. Right? We want to be God. And as long as we want to be God, we can't have Christ, and we won't be saved. So if sometime in the past, in an emotional moment, you gave your heart because it just felt right, but the fact is you've had no transformation in your life, you haven't changed at all, may I suggest that you may not truly be saved? That you may not truly be a born-again Christian? If you went through a process like I did as a child and you became baptized and confirmed and did all the religious things that you were supposed to do but find yourself feeling empty and unsure about your eternal destination, may I suggest that you're not a born-again Christian? Because someone else did all the heavy lifting for you and all you really needed was one person to do the heavy lifting. His name is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? So if you believe in this free gift, this life that he gave you, that is called grace, by the way, because it's undeserved. If you believe that, then you're a Christian. And the expectations are this. 1 Peter talks about saying, since you have been purified, your souls in obedience to the truth, for a sincere love of the brothers and sisters love one another from the heart so if you are saved if you are born again you should have a purified heart you should not desire the same horrible destructive things that you previously did now it doesn't mean that you won't be tempted you just won't be living for these things anymore. You could be an addict and have a physical addiction to something, but still hate it. Are you with it? Okay. It doesn't change temptation. Temptation is not an indication that you're not saved. It's not an indication that you're not born again. It's a reality. I'm talking about what drives you, what fuels you. If you're still fueled by the same disgusting, destructive behavior. I'd really do a gut check on where you are with God because you shouldn't feel that way anymore. Because if you're really born again, you should have a heart that desires to be pure and you should start feeling love for people. Even if they don't look like you, even if they do things that offend you, Even if it's uncomfortable or difficult to love these individuals, you should love them. Because Jesus loves you, and you're a difficult person. And you often do things that are disgusting, whether we see it or not. And you often can be very difficult, because he knows. right? Likewise, we need to love one another. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Jesus' words. We're not making this stuff up. Jesus was the one who initiated this discussion on being born again. What he's saying is, it's a redo, friends. It's a redo. It's a redo on religion. Rely on the word of God. Rely on the words of Jesus. How do I know if I'm saved? Real quick, I know I'm running a Lord on time. So, is your conscience banging away? Are you saying, man, I really shouldn't be doing this. I know it's wrong. Ooh, that's a good sign. It's a good sign to have an acute conscience. Okay, but that's not enough. Have you surrendered to God's authority? Have you put your trust in him fully? Meaning, are you really trusting all your stuff? Think of the thing that's most important to you. Pride? Money? Right? Reputation, whatever it is. Think of it real quick. That's the thing. Have you given that? Most important thing to you in the world, your kids? Have you given your kids to Christ? No? Got some work to do. Have you begun to transform into a more loving, moral person? Has God transformed you through the process of purification? No? No? Have you worked on it at all? Are you belonging to a group that holds you accountable and that you're studying God's word and no? Beware. Beware. Only God knows truly, if you're sincere. I don't know it. You all look great to me. I mean, some of you give wonderful hugs. You smile all the time. Always makes me suspicious when you smile all the time, by the way. Y'all look good on the outside. I don't know. I'm not God. But God knows. Truly, I think inside, you do. So pure religion, real religion, in the sight of God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained of the world. Now, Please don't think that you just have to immediately go see orphans and widows in distress and that you're good that you got your ticket punched because now we're going back to killing critters and paying priests, okay? No, but you should have the desire to do right, right? And you should have the desire to seek what is right. So here's my ask. Here's my ask. You need to be absolutely confident about what you believe. There's no reason to leave here today or if you're online, there's no reason for you to sign off with questions about this. There are people here After service, we'll be very, very honored to speak with you. Maybe this is the day you put it together, right? Maybe this is the day. Please stay. Come up. Talk to us. There's an eternal consequence to getting this wrong. This is really serious stuff. And if maybe you thought you were on the right track and you're not, maybe you're stuck, let us help you, okay? Come and see us after the service. But remember, true religion, true religion is so much more than a method, than a process, than doing stuff to earn favor with God. True religion is giving all to God and letting him be God, because you're not. God bless you. Thank you.